0: Hi everybody, Wayne Dorband and Mark Shepard, who is dealing with a warm computer again. He's here. You can see the slide up and he, we've all been talking sort of behind the scenes before we get started. Welcome to you all. Um, and this is session 16 of the um, forest ecology course that Mark is so graciously teaching us and working in, and uh, coaching us with. And, I'm going to be really brief today, and I'm going to actually beg out because of a little, just the last little announcement that I'll do, and that it's Wednesday night, it's getting dark here early now, and, and I'm getting ready for our event that some of you are coming to out here at the Mountain Sky Ranch in Colorado, and you know everything, a lot of things get done at the last minute, and we've had nice weather, and, but it's getting dark earlier. So I'm going to spend the last hour and a half of the day working with some of our crew here just getting things a little more in shape for the weekend. And Mark's going to do his teaching and I'm going to turn it over to him. I've got Mark in Bangladesh and Stephanie and um, Deb, I think, helping. And everybody, you guys, make sure you're looking for questions. Mark is not seeing his question screen again this time. And I'm going to actually start just because these people were here early and they're always here with a couple of questions that were asked. Mark, and then you can you start with those. And um, so the announcement was, hey, still come out here if you get a chance. I know some of you are. Um, it's it's late timing for most of you. I don't expect you to, but we are going to video the aquaculture course that I'm going to do on Sunday. We're going to video a lot of what goes on Saturday too. So we'll we'll post some of that, but. There's nothing like being with people face-to-face, so hopefully the next one of these we do. I hope we'll still do another one before winter hits in our part of the world, at least, or we'll do it somewhere farther south. Um, I'd like to do one actually down at the facility that I've now got considerable management authority over that I've described to you. even saw a video on our aquaculture, which is the combination moringa, date palm, um, aquaculture farm down in the Coachella Valley. So about 30 minutes from Palm Springs, easy place to get in and out of. There's lodging on site. We could probably have 15, 20 people or more that could stay right on the farm. Um, anyway, that that might be something we think about for one of our next live gathering for everybody. But Mark, let me ask a couple questions that are sure. asked by the crowd, um, and then just go from there. So the first one, um, so it was it was Karen saying that she liked what. What Elaine did, Dr. Ingham, she said I got a chance to meet her at Permaculture Voices Two in San Diego. I don't. Did we meet there, Karen? Because obviously Mark and I were both there. Mark was speaking, she, and then she also. Oh, she says I got to meet Mark there, getting my question in early on page one ten. Like you remember page one ten, <laughs> probably Mark, but of your book, discuss wood that has been coppiced and burned as a biomass feedstock. Could you please define biomass feedstock?
1: Sure. The term biomass is any kind of material that was living tissue at one point in time. A feedstock is something that you use to actually uh, put into a process, uh, and there's various different processes that you can use with biomass. You can, you can extrude it with a screw and an impeller, much like an oil press. You can uh, burn it. You can uh, uh, pyrolyze it, which is uh, like a gasifier. So, just a biomass feedstock is is any, it's Simplest terms, firewood is biomass feedstock. You're using biomass to feed this combustion process to heat your home, to heat your hot water, etc. So, it's it's a, a fairly wide term um, that I've used. On our farm, it's, well, we're using mostly for firewood. We also have a, a utility interconnect. Uh, which allows us to send electricity back into the grid. Uh, We're going to be getting a gasifier one of these days. We don't have one yet where we'll be gasifying hazelnut shells uh, and coppice wood um, to create biochar heat for the buildings and electricity.
0: And I'm just going to throw in quickly that bio biomass fuel Stock, feedstock can be great if managed properly. Where Mark and I are working, and Mark's been on a project in Africa, it's been what has become a devastation of a lot of the forested area because they literally just cut down tens and thousands and hectares of acres, thousands and thousands for creating charcoal, which would then be a biomass-related feedstock in a very non-restorative sort of way. So um, it's creating a huge problem. One more question, and then Mark, I'm going to just turn over. You get started. A little bit different track, but coming from one of our regulars. um, She says, and this is Ray, saying, I think I'm confused about, well, wait a minute, let me back up. No, it says that. I think I'm confused about GMO. Are plants only considered GMO if a virus is introduced? No. Uh, I mean, it's that simple question. Uh, it's fairly
1: simple. A GMO is genetically modified organism. That is an organism uh, that has been, it's, it's very genetics, it's nuclear genetics, uh, or it's ribosomal, you know, uh, it's DNA in the, in the nucleus or RNA in the ribosomes have been changed by some sort of, introduction of a gene from another uh, a genus or species of organism. There's different devices, there's a thing called a gene gun where they take like a micronized sized piece of gold and they put some DNA on it and like a tattoo gun they shoot it into a cell and hope that it lands in the right spot. There's ways to introduce it with bacteria, there's ways to introduce it uh, with viruses, it's just introducing uh, genetic material from a, a different organism and a different genus and species all together into one. The classic example was like of uh, the frost band tomato where they took genes from an arrowhead flounder, an Arctic and a, in a, you know, polar uh, North and South Pole flounder, that you can freeze these things solid for years and then thaw the, thaw the ice and they're still alive. It took those genes and put them into a, a tomato so it wouldn't, it wouldn't suffer frost damage. Um, or it was actually, that was a strawberry, the uh, arrowhead flounder in a straw. So that's, that's the kind of thing that genetically modified organisms are. If it's, if it's classical uh, uh, genetics, if you've got pollen that pollinates one flower to another flower, that's not genetically modified organisms. However, if you have a genetically modified organism, such as Roundup Ready canola, they put the genes, I think it was from a petunia into uh, canola, now that to make it resistant to the herbicide Roundup well then once the canola flowers these new uh, petunia genes are in the canola then that pollen goes off and it can pollinate a related species of, of radish perhaps or cabbage or broccoli or kale now you have these Roundup ready genes in the kale that kale plant hasn't officially, technically, been genetically—it's not a genetically modified organism because we didn't directly change its genes, but it's been pollinated by one. So this is this whole thing with genetically modified organisms is—it's uh, going to be more and more confusing as time goes on because genetics don't stand still; they keep moving and they keep uh, uh, propagating wherever they can go. And so, is there our last I'm question?
0: Yeah, I mean, actually somebody threw a name of, a, I think, a plant in here, um, Clean, Clean Star Mozambique, probably something that's, that's a GMO um, variant of something. Yeah, I think that's it for now. You can go ahead and get started. I want to just quickly, either Mark or Stephanie, can you guys hear us, and are you going to be managing the questions here so I can go on outside and get some work done and then follow this later? Absolutely, I'll read the questions at the end. All right, thank you, Stephanie. By the way, All that's, right, huh? that's, wonderful. that's the one. That's the one. So, Mark, get going. And thank yeah. you. I'm going to turn my webcam off. Don't feel. Don't worry, guys, because you're not seeing any webcams because Mark's is too hot to be able to turn on. and I'm just going to turn mine off here. So, love I'm you guys. Hot. I hopefully it's going to see some of you. End and um, have fun. Mark's going to be great. Oh, I want to recommend if you haven't watched the replay. We did a really cool interview last night with a guy named Dr. Tom Whiting um, finishing up our chicken series. That's when you really go back and watch it. You'll really enjoy it. Tom was just great. I won't give you more more info on it than that. Just go watch it. You'll enjoy it. Thanks, Mark. Go for it, man. All right. Thank you.
1: Hey, I'm going to uh, do not as much review and uh, in intro this week as I have before because uh, many of you, most of you, so far I guess are regulars here plus those who aren't regulars can go back and see previous uh, webinars. How I am presenting the forest ecology uh, curriculum is uh, through the lens and perspective of somebody who who is wanting to design and manage their property in such a way that we get agricultural yields from it. We want to be able to yield food, fiber, medicine uh, those sorts of things, fuel, uh, not not just what's traditionally seen, like in this picture here, these are redwood trees. Um, instead of just managing this as a forest, we want to understand the full complex of ecological processes so we can interact with this in such a way that there are other values besides just plain old timber. And Another reason why I want to like present the forest ecology curriculum and, and ecology in general is there's so much and too much of what's going on in permaculture and even in you know like regenerative agriculture, sustainable, uh, biological, all these different um, non-poison agricultural methodologies that's based on pure dogma and somebody said it once upon a time and it gets repeated over and over and over and over again and because most people believe it or not you look around most people who are teaching stuff on regenerative and permaculture uh, type topics haven 't even been living this way well i have i 've been living this way for the past thirty years i 'm also a trained ecologist and i've been interacting with the planet uh, on, as ecologically as I possibly can for the past thirty years i 've been deriving my economic livelihood from the the production and sales of agricultural products and forest derived products so i 've kind of grab the forest on one side and the agriculture on the other side, and I kind of blend them together. To me, it's all about ecology. How do we human beings live on planet Earth? So back to the whole uh, uh, dogma versus fact. This is it's, it's, it's a funny topic to get into because people do get offended sometimes when we talk about it. So I'm going to pick on the same um, person who's deceased now, uh, who I was at a workshop once upon a time and they looked at a situation much like we see here, this ring of redwood trees around in a circle and the person said, oh look, this is a power vortex you know, and started talking about all this amazing stuff about how the, you know, the energies and the forces of the universe spinning in the vortex in this particular direction and it interacts and all the trees come around to give their gratitude to this power vortex and all these people were spellbound and fascinated by it and whether or not that's true. Um, I don't necessarily have an argument with what she described, however, but how it was described was in such a way that we could not verify whether it was true or not. It was not an observable phenomena for anybody. We just had to believe what she said. We had to you know, take her words as, as the truth. Whereas this situation right here, we see the remains of a stump in the center of the circle of trees. There may or may not be a power vortex there, but neither you nor I have any technique or technology or method by which to see, uh, perceive this particular vortex that may or may not be there. If it's there, and it might be, it's totally invisible to us, that we we can't sense it. However, there are some things here that are now observable. They are observations. We can see in the center here that there is the remains of a stump. It's flat across looks perhaps like it was cut with some sort of saw, instead of blown over by a windstorm which would have a snapped jagged stump. And since we've also studied nature itself instead of uh, followed someone else's uh, dogmatically and just rigidly adhered to what they said is the truth, uh, we also know a little bit about redwood trees as they are a fire uh, tolerant species and they have buds that are hidden on the underside of their roots around the base of the stump and so if a fire goes through the area and burns it, those roots don't get burnt, or the buds don't get burned and then they sprout up afterwards and, and it comes they come up in a ring around this stump. That's an observable phenomena that you can observe in species after species after species that's a fire adapted species um, and that's something that it's an observable phenomena. There may or may not be a vortex there, uh, but we can observe that these are stump sprouts around this uh, this uh, redwood stump. And another thing that kind of bothered me about is like yeah this, this you know this power vortex, well okay, well, whose definition of power are you using? Um, my computer didn't advance the slide, I got it. No I don't. Hello? There we go. So we want, we want to, when we're doing restoration agriculture, We want to observe reality, the actual real phenomena of the rocks and the trees and the dirt and the water and the wind and the bugs and the animals. We want to actually observe that and not try to understand reality through our concepts. So this concept of this power vortex was how this person was relating with reality instead of actual observable reality. Can you guys see the difference there? Um, I'm not saying that she's wrong. I'm just saying that that's not an observation, that, that that is a concept, and it does not help us to actually interact with reality. So so much of what's being taught uh, in permaculture and, and a lot of restoration you know, uh, stuff is is uh, purely conceptual, and it's, and it's being taught by people with no experience actually living this way. So back to the definition of power. Look at all the definitions of power. Well, what kind of power vortex is it? You know, physical might, is it possession of control of influence over others? Is it the ability to act or produce an effect? Well, how do I observe a power? Well, if I observe a power, how do I observe a vortex? This is not an observable phenomena. This is an idea that someone had. It may be a reality, but they didn't explain to me how I can see that or, or, or uh, observe that. Uh, we're talking a lot about disturbances, uh, different kinds of adaptations that plants, trees have, two different kinds of disturbances. The ones that we have spent the most amount of time on were the, are the ones that are the most common, wind and uh, fire. Uh, last week or the week before, I showed uh, some examples of trees that had the ground line, which is the, pla- the place where the seed actually got sprouted. and The ground line was above the current ground level. And trees do not grow from the bottom up, meaning they don't like have the seed that hits the ground and they they, uh, push themselves up from the bottom. Trees grow from the tips, they add another cell on top of themselves all the time. So where that seed is sprouted is where that ground line is, where the tissues that are root tissues and the tissues that are trunk tissues are separated. Sometimes when you see a ground line that's above ground, that means that the ground has settled, has eroded. Uh, it does not mean that the tree has grown up out of the soil. Sometimes when you see a ground line like this, we have a, a little tree that's sprouted on a on the stump of another tree. And it's quite common and sometimes what happens is that that stump will eventually rot, decay and go away And what we will have, and this is the same tree from a different angle, I just wanted to see the roots, as this stump decays and goes away, pretty soon we'll have this uh, this tree standing on these roots uh, up up in the middle of the air. And so someone who's going to look at that conceptually might say, oh here's a tree that's you know becoming an ent and whatever it is and walking across the planet. It's like well no this is a tree that sprouted in a stump, the stump rotted away. We need to become detectives of the, real, of the real observable phenomena on planet Earth if we stand a chance at interacting uh, with our place in an ecologically sound manner. And uh, in case you guys have been living under a rock lately, it's time that humanity wakes up and starts living in an ecological manner. It's time to stop destroying the resource bases upon which we depend and start interacting with them in a way that helps them to optimize their function and their growth which will obviously help us. It's the Earth care part of it. Without us taking care of uh, the planet Earth, it won't take care of us. And without us taking care of people, uh, people won't take care of uh, planet Earth. And if we're going to be doing permaculture, permanent agriculture, agriculture means growing food. Growing food means growing enough for us and growing a surplus that we can then share in exchange and some of that surplus gets reinvested back into our own uh, projects so we increase the natural capital and the natural wealth and the productivity of our site. And hence, if, if you're trying to do any kind of sustainable agriculture and you don't want to pay attention to ecology or ecological processes, you lose because uh, everything, all plants and animals, uh, obey and fall within the, the realm of ecological processes on planet Earth. They just do. And if you don't believe it, it's too bad they still do. Uh, Currently, right now, I'm in a fascinating place with some clients. I'm in uh, eastern Pennsylvania. This is the uh, original building on the property. It was built, uh, the building started here in 1760 by uh, free colonists. They weren't English, well, they weren't um, like indentured English, uh, and they weren't uh, royalty. These were just like regular commoners that came and started a homestead and uh, they would build a cabin right over here and then this was a spring house and they made it develop a little spring and the water came out through here and in this little tunnel was where they would store things that needed refrigeration. They came out to this land and, and think about early colonists. They had to survive. Let's take a permaculture, any permaculturist, and let's drop them off somewhere in the middle of the USA and say, okay, survive. Will they be able to do it? Well, these people did. Some of what they did is they interacted with their environment according to their concepts. And they of course believed that they had to cut everything down and and clear it off and grow grains and legumes and stuff like that. That has some negative consequences long-term. But what they did a lot of really uh, very wise and prudent things, Uh, this little tree right here, we can learn a little bit about this. This is a tulip poplar. This is the biggest doggone tulip poplar I've ever seen. If we know anything about tulip poplars, a little bit about tulip poplars, we know that they <clears throat> they're they like a, a mid-succession to a late-succession tree. They're somewhat shade tolerant. They like lots of water. They can tolerate temperatures down to 20 or 30 below. They can't quite go to 40 or 50 below. So we know from looking at this tree right here, for at least for these many years, on this huge, gigantic tree, it's probably had... 30 to 60 inches of rain a year, and it probably hasn't gone below 20 below zero very often at all. Uh, it'll tolerate very hot temperatures, probably no hotter than 100, 115 degrees. So we know a lot about the weather and the climate just by looking at one tree right here. These people were smart. They're sustainable. They built with stone. Wow, they had a resource on site called stone. They removed the stone from the fields, and they built a modest little cottage and then they built a developed spring house eventually they tied the two together put a roof over it and then they went and they built their other other house and what I find fascinating about this most people up oh, this is the tree now if you think about my arm as three feet long and my body two feet long this tree is at least six feet across at, at uh, my shoulder heights amazingly huge tree how old is that I don't know it probably uh, no younger than 1760, so 1819, almost almost 300 year old tree. That's a, that's a sustainable uh, plant. Now here's here's the house. Now most people go, oh my gosh, this is an amazing like rich person's estate. But this this property started by people who were scratching holes in the dirt. They lived in a dugout. They made a tiny little eight by ten. This little house right here, right here, uh, this isn't even six feet tall tiny little house, very modest. They probably packed a thousand people in there. I don't know, five or six kids. Then what they did is the first building they built after that was their barn. That was the most important. Then this house had been added on to, uh, from what we can tell, uh, because of different date stones that they have in here, it was added on to at least, let me get to it. I'll see because I can count. It was uh, uh, one, like one, two, three, four, five, five or six different times over the next uh, hundred years. Because you can tell by all the different building techniques that they use. Now think about the wisdom of that. Let's build something so that as our family grows, as our extended family grows, as our needs for, for processing or you know gathering materials together. Uh, remember, this, this was heated all by wood. So the chimney, if we go back, we see this chimney right here is located right in the center of this big, it's 80 feet across, right across here. And this chimney is the center of the whole entire house open on this side for fireplace that side for fireplace Uh, uh, down there is a cellar down here root cellar over here and in this uh, cellar part here there's it's a walk-in fireplace where you can hang your meats to smoke fireplaces upstairs this is the central heat inside this building a brilliant design and it was built maybe almost over the course of a hundred years how many of people who are building today says yeah I'm going to build my house going to start small and I'm going to build this house over the next hundred years and we're going to build it in such a way that it's still going to be here 300 years from now. This house is designed to run without fossil fuels. It's designed to run without electricity uh, and it's lasted 300 years. That's that's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. This is uh, some of the fields that we're working with. We're going to be converting this into a restoration ag type system. We're going to manage the water then we're going to mimic the natural uh, plant communities that are here. Uh, and we're also going to interact with the plant communities, the the more wilder natural areas that are there and the uh, landowners already have, they've been through several of my different trainings and part of what we've done here, this is jumping ahead a little bit but uh, I want to present ecology to you guys in such a way that we manage our land in such a way that we're not doing harm to it, that we're actually doing a benefit to ourselves, wildlife, and we're going to be producing a surplus of food, fuel, medicine, fiber, taking carbon out of the atmosphere, purifying water, all that baloney. So what they did here is this was all seriously overgrown, actually undergrown, brush. There was uh, taller trees all around that had been undergrown with shade-tolerant uh, shrubs. So they began by the process of going around the edges and just clearing out the edges. So now what they have in here is they have uh, more sunlight can be pen- penetrated down through here Grasses grow, they've top seeded with certain pasture grasses. Just by doing this little perimeter around the farm, they gained about an additional five acres of grazing land. Well, in this place, land doesn't sell for 3,000 an acre, or 5,000 an acre, or 10,000 an acre. Land in this part of the country, uh, only a couple hours from Washington, D.C., sells for approximately, yes, hold your breath, $50,000 an acre. So by clearing out a little brush, they now have an additional. Uh, What's 50 times five? That's $250,000 worth of functional grazing land here. Uh, Whereas over here, zero value at all uh, for grazing purposes. This looks prettier, and if you're gonna sell this for development, that's far more of a value increase uh, than this is, clearing it all out and taking everything away. So this is an example of how do we adapt uh, ourselves to the ecological realities. How do we disturb the site so ecologically it still stays functional and we get some of our own values accomplished at the same time. Alright so we were talking about fire uh, fire adaptations. I'll blow through some of this pretty quick because we've already covered this. Thick fire-resistant bark. Trees with thick fire-resistant bark are fire adapted. The fire goes through. It can burn all kinds of stuff on the, on the, on the ground but it won't necessarily kill the tree. Some of those couple the, the fire-resistant bark with these epicormic sprouts. Epicormic is just right underneath the, the, uh, uh, the, the cork layer, the bark layer, and so these sprouts can come back up and uh, even if the top is torched off in a crown fire, uh, those sprouts can now take over and form a new top of a tree. Some of these buried buds, many of us have gotten nursery stock and we've seen this little crook in the bottom, well there's these buds hidden underneath. This is a lot like that redwood tree it's got these carefully hidden buds that, if a surface fire goes by and burns that, this top might get burned completely off. But these dormant buds under here that sprout back up just like this, protected by that basal crook. The grass stage, uh, longleaf pine in the in the uh, southeast and south, is a classic example. It spends several years, um, sometimes up to 10 years, in this little grass stage right here. The uh, the needles are so flammable. That the, uh, any kind of surface fire comes through, it just burns off so quick. <laughs> the fuel's gone, the fire moves on. Uh, there's no, it's not enough time to, uh, to be severe enough to uh, damage this tree. And the taproot, the nice cool taproot, helps to keep the stem cool uh, and it recovers nicely after the, after the fire. Uh, deep rooting, I just talked about that previously. If this gets too hot up here, we get a nice deep root that's cool. This root, deep root at 50 degrees in the soil, is going to help keep the tree itself cool. If you, if you go stand next to a hickory tree, hickory tree is a very deep taproot like this, uh, and you put your hand on the bark, the temperature of that bark is going to be dramatically cooler than the outside temperature simply because this root is like a thermal mass and all that heat is conducted or the, all the cool whatever is conducted through this, uh, through the trunk, and it helps to keep all of this cool to suffer less fire damage. Uh, Rapid juvenile growth, this is a longleaf pine once again once that grass stage is over with and that taproot is developed enough it uh, takes off like crazy. Fire resistant live foliage, some of it you can burn it and it barely singes on the edges. Um, Some of them have different chemicals inside, some of them have waxes that will burn off and protect the uh, the leaves, other ones exude moisture so almost like their own uh, sprinkler system uh, so fire resistant live foliage will protect it. Others have this habit that as they grow up branches in the shade uh, die and then drop to the ground so now there's no ladder fuels that will uh, cause a surface fire to climb up. Others uh, have rapid foliage decomposition so that these leaves fall on the ground and don't provide a fuel source also for any fires coming through here the grass come through and then any kind of surface fire will peter out as it hits this almost bare soil underneath. <clears throat> Some of the rapid recovery strategies. they have uh, rhizomes under the soil, root collar sprouts, crown sprouts, uh, burls, dormant buds, root suckers. All these are strategies to recover after a, after a fire. Of course, after like a blowdown with wind, they'll also sprout back that way, but uh, without that, those strategies, they would not recover from fire even some late successional species, like beech, American beech, and there's a lot of American beech on this site, as well as tulip poplar, sugar maple, um, uh, eastern hemlock. Uh, the, a beech, a fire can come through here, burn off the the, uh, the surface, and the trunk is very sensitive to fire. The top may die, and then all along the roots that are here, they just sprout like crazy, and now you have, instead of like one beech tree, now I have 50 million beech trees like in this. These same strategies, these uh, uh, rapid resprouting strategies in trees, which was their natural defense against fire, uh, works in our, to our benefit. Benefit in that these trees uh, coppice very readily. You can cut them completely to the ground and they'll re-sprout, or you cut them partially to the ground and they'll resprout from the tops. So they'll resprout from the roots. We, we can understand the plant's behavior, it's a fire adaptation, but it's also adapted to coppicing because it has this rapid resprout ability. Uh, early flowering seed production, precociousness. This is a, uh, a three-year-old chestnut tree that's beginning to bear. Uh, precocity in the trees is primarily genetic. So chestnut, for example, um, we can concentrate precocity in it, The precocity is one of the fire adaptation strategies. We can now concentrate this, and guess what? That works to our benefit. By understanding some of these survival strategies, we now know that coppicing can be a tool, and it's somewhat uh, that's working with its fire adaptation strategy. We know early reproduction is another fire adaptation strategy. Uh, Seeds from trees really fast is to our benefit. We can get, be getting food from trees. It's a myth that, oh, trees take forever before they start producing seed. It's not, a, not useful as, a, as an agricultural crop. Well, my foot, if we're, getting, we're getting seed off of chestnuts. I got two family lines of chestnut trees at my place that, all oh, say, 60 or 70% of their offspring uh, will come right up out of the nut and have a flower that very first year with a seed. So uh, pre- precociousness is a fire adaptation that we can use to our benefit. Light windborne seeds. The classics are uh, like birch and uh, maples and elms, and uh, most of the pines have little tiny seeds like this. Then serotonous cones. Uh, cones. Uh, jack pine is probably the the most common all across the USA. Uh, pitch pine in the in the east and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, pond pine across the uh, Uh, Mid-Atlantic, up through Table Mountain Pine in the uh, Kentucky Plateau, Tennessee area. We've got uh, Lodgepole Pine, um, and there's quite a few species of pine in California. I'm not as familiar with California plants as I am other parts of the country. Some of these cones, like Jack Pine for example, it can tolerate almost a thousand degree heat for a minute, and uh, all it does is it melts the glue, melts the pitch, opens, the seeds open up, and then uh, the heat triggers the seed to say, hey, wake up, start growing. That seems to me like a pretty amazing trait to have developed. Um, and this is the pond pine. It's, a, it's the classic one. This can take the highest heat of any of the, uh, the serotoninous cones, and uh, that's what causes that seed to germinate. It has that particular stratification technique. That's what will cause that seed to germinate. Others, it's, it's, isn't it fascinating? At this tree, one fire adaptation strategy is to not sprout unless you're burned. Another one is to sprout no matter what regardless. Uh, chestnut is a classic. White oak, uh, bur oak are both, um, all of those are uh, trees that will drop the seed right to the ground and sprout. Um, you, want, you want to be able to, if a fire goes through and kills the, the tree top in the fall, that, that seed drops to the ground, puts a root down immediately, and there it is. It's now it's gotten some nice uh, exposed mineral soil, a lot of quick release nutrients from the fire and it's gonna uh, dominate that site, colonize the a site. Both oak and chestnut also have extremely rapid juvenile growth uh, so they can grow faster than anybody else especially with, when you got no competition that's been erased by fire and the f- quick flush of uh, mineral nutrients from, from the, uh, from the uh, burn And then once you've grown fast, you start to develop a thick corky bark on the base, and if another fire comes through, you just might make it and never be burned again to cast more seed. (laughs) Some other trees, their strategy is to go ahead and promote fire. And like uh, white birch, paper birch, river birch, uh, a lot of the firs from uh, conkler fir, silver fir, Fraser fir in the west and Rocky Mountains to uh, balsam fir in the east and the north. they're okay with fire coming through. As a matter of fact, they encourage fire. Some of what they can do is, uh, like for balsam fir, they're sh- somewhat shade tolerant. They'll grow underneath an overstory and they can cause a crown fire. Let's say they're underneath white pine that's got this big, you know, thick bark and it's now impervious to fire. Well, fire doesn't go through for a few years. Your balsam fir get established underneath. Then the balsam firs torch out the this foliage lights on fire catches the crowns of the white pine on fire, wipes out the overstory white pine. Uh, the balsam fir has very light seed that scatters and blows all over the place now that, that uh, the um, balsam fir can colonize and dominate the site for a while. White birch has super light seed that will also blow around in the wind after a fire and it sprouts back from, from the stump. So they have multiple different fire strategies. And one of the ways to go ahead and survive through it is to light on fire real quick and burn everybody else out of your way, and then you can uh, propagate faster. So the retention of foliage near the ground. This is a white spruce, for example. The tr- this tree itself, white spruce, and also with the firs, for example, they're very fire. Uh, they're flammable. They, they just they burn right out. But they have those super light seeds. They they want that bare uh, mineral soil exposed by a fire uh, in order for them to grow. So you you combine this, torch out fast, burn off the overstory, uh, get your seeds out there, and survive uh, to the next round. Uh, Retention the dead lower branches. These are also white spruce. So when white spruce is in the full sun, it's got living foliage, it's highly flammable, kapoof, you can torch out the overstory. Uh, In this case, now it's gotten shadier. It's uh, white spruce, all the green is up on top. Now you still have all these ladder fuels that if a ground fire comes through here, it's going to torch right out. Forest fire uh, fighters know about these different characteristics of trees and you use fire lines to steer the fire where you want it to go. You don't necessarily want to steer it toward fir or spruce uh, because it's going to torch out and the fire will then reach all the way up to the crown. Some of the things that are fire adaptation strategies, short short stature, everything from uh, gamble oak, uh, blackjack oak, Uh, Some of the bristlecone pines, look at the uh, bark on that as well. Um, They stay right down within the fire zone. If if a surface fire goes by, the whole tree torches, uh, they will sprout back from the roots. They also have seeds that uh, may not have a, I know that um, blackjack oak, it will uh, drop its seeds right to the ground and immediately start sprouting. not sure about gamble oak. Some of you uh, uh, Coloradans let me know if... uh, gamble oak sprouts immediately. Now the types and the numbers of fire adapted species on your site, go wherever you are and look what kind of trees you have. If you don't know how to identify trees, get a good tree identification book and learn. Learn their names, learn their habitats, learn their behaviors. You just look around and you look at the numbers of trees on your site, you now have evidence of the, uh, the frequency, the type, and the intensity of fire that's been happening on your place. This place here has beech, sugar maple, and tulip poplar, that's telling me that this is a, a old-growth, uh, late successional, they're all shade tolerant, they, uh, they're not all that uh, fire adapted, although beech will sprout back uh, readily after fire. Uh, they, they like a certain rainfall pattern, like 45 inches of rain, So, and you've got this 300-year-old shade tolerant late successional tree. We know there probably hasn't been fire here, a catastrophic fire, in at least 300 years well, oh, and more than that because we had to go through early succession, we had to go through grassland, we had to go through shrubland, through the sun loving phase like oaks and hickories uh, and ash and then eventually into our sugar maple beech, uh, tulip poplar, hemlock, so it was probably another 300 years before That's probably 600 years before any any real catastrophic fire went through here, um, just by looking at the types of trees around. Whereas if you live in a jack pine thicket that's about 10 foot tall, uh, you, you know that that's had regular fire, oh, probably for close to forever. And what that means is probably you will have a fire probably real soon, probably within 50 years. So by understanding the types of trees that are on your site, you can learn the weather, the climate, the fire regime, and then that will teach you if you're actually looking at the observable phenomena, this is the evidence that will tell you how to interact with your site, and if you don't interact with your site in a in a compatible manner, you'll destroy your resource base. Uh, you'll have you know less health and nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, and the, oh, the whole world falls apart and we start over. Yeah, that's the ticket. All right, <clears throat> different types of fire. There's ground fires, surface fires, and crown fires. Ground fires are fires that are actually in the ground. Uh, up upper left here, uh, this is a ground fire up in Alaska a lot of the places that have a higher organic matter accumulation than decomposition which happens in many cold climates where uh, mosses and lichens and tundra type stuff grows but it's so cool that you don't get a lot of decomposition going on uh, the peat just builds up and builds up and builds up and this, uh, this peat can catch on fire and just smolder and it's under the ground. A lot of other places such as in the, in the southeast very heavy rainfalls, you know, 100 plus inches of rain a year, Uh, but because of the soil chemistry and the chemistry created by the the plants and trees, there are uh, hydrophobic layers within the soil that don't allow the water to soak down into the soil and it it kind of puddles on top and then all this uh, organic matter accumulates on top and so you have peat, wet peat uh, temperate zone areas (coughs) which can light on fire. Even in the tropics, there are peat lands, uh, deep, deep, deep layers of peat that it's under the ground and it smolders and can go forever. Surface fires are fires that are burning the material on the surface, grasses, twigs, leaves, uh, small brush, and a crown fire is a fire that's gone up into the tops of the trees. Uh, these are the most uh, uh, feared by people and they're the, less, they're the least um, able to control because They start creating their own updrafts and their own wind currents and sometimes they create their own weather and they can hop and jump around all over the place and and they can uh, burn through full-size trees sometimes in the snap of their fingers. It's amazing how fast crown fires can go. You guys have seen a lot of crown fire stuff on the news lately. What we see here is we see an area. This is in uh, Minnesota. I took this this summer. This is uh, uh, one year after a fire. How do I know it's one year after a fire? I know it's one year after a fire because the, this tree was green last year. The fire went through and the green needles died but they haven't fallen off. So in this one summer, this summer here 2016, these needles are in the process of falling off. Probably next season the snow will knock it all off. Uh, what had happened is this, this surface fire came through fairly quickly. It didn't consume a lot of these sticks. Some of these sticks may have fallen over of course. You see some evidence of burning here. But this kind of stuff didn't burn. uh, And it moved through. And it killed these trees. This is a balsam fir. Balsam fir is very tender bark. And it has blisters full of pitch that will catch on fire. But it didn't have enough. uh, The the ground fire either went through fast enough or it wasn't hot enough. So it didn't climb up here and start burning out the crowns of these trees. So a surface fire had gone through here. uh, And it didn't turn into a crown fire. This tree probably died because of the heat down here. Uh, Probably not because it torched out because there's still branches on it. We need to be detectives looking at how this operates. Different kinds of uh, uh, crown fires, how they happen. Um, Many of them are just these hopping crown fires. You'll get one tree, torches out. Uh, Then it can hop to another one. There are other crown fires that are uh, dependent. This fire will not Uh, this will only sustain itself if it has a surface fire underneath it and there's other kinds of uh, crown fires that they don't need a ground fire to keep them going that once they get up into the crown the ground doesn't burn anymore and it's just the crowns that that burn across it and uh, man oh man don't get me in the way of that fire right there (laughs) so a couple of things with fire Uh, the intensity of a fire is how high the flames are or the amount of uh, heat energy generated by it. A, uh, so the severity is the effect on the, on the soil, and the vegetation and here's what's where, where we kind of mix with these. You can have a high-intensity fire, super amazing amount of heat generated, but it's not very severe and the case, an example right here, is you can have a super intense fire, crown fire, but it's independent from the ground and so, yeah, these trees die, but there's not a lot of uh, effect on the, on the surface vegetation. It could still be alive underneath and it grows just fine. So this would be intense but not severe. Uh, or you can have a low-intensity fire that's just a gentle little surface fire or a ground fire, but it sits there and it smolders and it smolders and it smolders and it smolders and it has a tremendous effect on the soil and the vegetation. So the intensity and the severity of the fires are part of our whole fire regime. Now what we want to do as restoration agriculturists we're going to be working with trees. Uh, Whether we're in the middle of a grassland and have very few trees or we're moving into forest land and have a lot of trees, uh, how do we mimic the beneficial effects of fire or any disturbance for that matter while minimizing the negative effects? That's what it's all about is how do we imitate natural processes to accomplish our objectives and to not interfere with the health and vitality of that natural ecosystem. As a matter of fact, we can actually help it to be more uh, biologically productive of of food, fuels, medicines, fibers, wildlife, water, uh, etc. So (coughs) back to this fire previously, we of course know that ground and surface fires typically affect only the understory and fire susceptible trees. We look at this picture here, this land has been managed, it's been managed by fire. How can we manage our land to get these effects? What if we want these overstory trees to produce? And what if we want some kind of understory that looks like this maybe to feed livestock or maybe this is some kind of berry producing uh, crop or whatever? (laughs) Let's take this one right here. If we were to look at this as a forester, foresters would look at this red pine. Red pine is is a very fire tolerant tree, big rugged plate for bark and then they would look at this understory of balsam fir and they say well we need to go in here and do timber stand improvement we need to go in and remove the balsam understory and uh, at least in southwest Wisconsin it was about hundred and eighty bucks an acre to do timber stand improvement the last I I talked to uh, one of my forester buddies so they would look at this as an expense there is a lot of uh, forest management that's not occurring because it, it is it is an expense. How it is done? Well, what if we what if we don't want to have red pine? Because these red pines aren't quite big enough for any kind of of use. It's a little bit too small for for pulpwood, uh, and they're not big enough for for sawlogs. Definitely not big enough for sawlogs. Matter of fact, even if they were big enough for pulpwood, there may not be enough of them to make it worthwhile. I had some uh, timberland. Um, uh, Uh, sinned. It was was an overstory removal. This is the overstory. It was an overstory removal in order to release the understory. It was different species in this and uh, we got $14 uh, per truckload. Uh, This is the big logging trucks. Per truckload of logs destined for toilet paper. $14 for about a hundred trees. That's 14 cents a tree. So the economic value of this, uh, net economic value, returned to the landowner is about 14 cents. Um, so do you really want to go spend 180 dollars an acre to get rid of the understory so you can grow faster trees and get 14 cents a tree later on? In many cases, it makes no economic sense. How do we get good management going on? This is this is a risk, right? This is a serious fire risk, Fire risk. Somebody whips a cigarette out here, these trees are going to torch out. You're going to lose both overstory and understory, and you start over. You're not even going to get your 14 bucks. Well, what if we want to favor balsam fir? Uh, how How would we go about doing that? Maybe these trees are big enough to make a little cabin. We can pull out the overstory, release that understory. We can remove the understory, and the overstory will grow better. Or we do nothing and risk catastrophic failure. All trees grow slower, both the understory and the overstory, then they start to compete with one another and you'll start to lose trees to rot and decay. Uh, what are some of our other goals? What other goals might we want to accomplish? What could we accomplish on this site? How can we mimic this? This was a fire a fire uh, number of years ago on this one. What a beautiful open wooded area. We, out of here you get recreation and timber. That's about it. Not a lot of food. This costs almost nothing to manage. How can we get good forest management and not cost us 180 bucks an acre? That's where I say that it's the agriculture part of restoration agriculture that gives us those, brings those values to us, because that's the most easily convertible into cash. And uh, this is an example right here with a client I'm working with um, in Kentucky, in that they they would remove uh, trees here and there to open it up seed grass underneath, uh, and now graze cattle and sheep, and you have chickens with eggs and alpaca, meat and wool, so it's almost zero inputs, and you, you, have, uh, you have cash return instead of an expense. Let's go back to this. How might we approach that? Well, what if we go ahead and remove an understory to favor the overstory? We want these pines to grow, uh, and we want a little light to get in here. Well, let's go in and remove the balsam firs. Well, when would you remove the balsam fir? Well, how about removing the balsam firs in about early November? Why on earth would I do early November? The ground is probably a lot more firm. A lot of the uh, understory plants are dormant for the winter. You're not going to do as much damage to the ground and you have time to harvest all of the greens and make them into Christmas wreaths. Now, you've removed the the understory, you've done timber stand improvement and the Christmas wreaths, uh, it's it's a economic yield so it may still have cost you two hundred bucks an acre to yourself your chainsaw and your time to go do this timber stand improvement but you got a yield out of it with Christmas wreaths. Uh, Also you go in and take other species such as birch, there could be some maple in here, you cut those logs out and use those to inoculate into mushrooms. So try to get as many different Uh, use values out of there from ornamental to food while doing your timber stand improvement here. And by the way, in uh, future sessions after our forest ecology session, we're going to go into silviculture as one of the, the branches of this is actual forest management, different forest management techniques. Some other values that you may be going toward or for is to get eventually an old growth forest look. Most old growth forests have a very uneven age distribution. But you saw in those previous pictures all the trees are about the same age. How do you get there? Well we might want to clear out a pocket of all those trees. Take all those red pines and all those balsam firs in this particular area here and let these ones grow on the left. And then maybe five or ten years later remove another pocket and another pocket until you have fewer trees of larger diameter <clears throat> and you have pockets with new regeneration coming on. And what you, this sets up here is now almost a regular uh, intervention. You can go in year after year after year and pull out like firewood length trees and still have plenty of seed to kind of cast down there. This is one approach to developing an old growth forest um, with our management style and having different various different ages. Uh, What would we do here? Oh my gosh what would you do here? Well we can start removing some, get some grass established in here, plant some shade tolerance underneath, Uh, perhaps blueberries. Maybe we'll use the shade as a mushroom yard and get logs from somewhere else. Um, Various different strategies. Let's think of ways to extract a yield besides just timber because as a timber stand. This is nothing but expense but as a opportunity for for ornamental, for uh, craft material and for agricultural products. Just open this up, scratch up the ground. Actually, how about harvesting the needles for pine needle mulch, those in the south and the east, uh, pine needle mulch is actually used instead of like bark mulch in most other places around the country. Or we can go in with a, a doodad like this, a land clear, or hydro axe, various different names for it. <clears throat> and you just drive it around and you grind up the understory. This is actually, yes, an expense. However, uh, or we can use fire, use a flame weeders. I like this uh, this red dragon here because what it does is it will flame the area, torch it, and there's a roller in the back that snuffs it out whereas this one here if you're if you do it at the wrong time of year things are too dry and too windy you can cause as many problems with that as, uh, as any irresponsible jerk can. Uh, this is actually set up as a coppice woodland where this this is constantly being coppiced throughout the years. These are hazelnuts over here removing material for, for making charcoal, for firewood, for inoculating you know mushroom, uh, mushroom logs And what they've left behind, they've gone in and removed the undesirable stuff and left the uh, ones that have some. We've got hazelnut. This looks like an apple. We've got various different nut-producing trees here. At the site that I'm at right now, they have a lot of hickories. They have a lot of beech nut. And if we're going to be opening up, letting more grass in, let's leave the trees that have more nuts on them. First, it can be human food for sale, and secondly, it can be animal, animal feed in the form of pig feed. So let's use our agriculture to get uh, yields out of our natural systems and let's manage them such that they actually have uh, better um, uh, photosynthetic um, productivity. I got right here a little video. I don't know if you guys will be able to hear the sound on it. This was a cornfield uh, 20 years before this picture was taken. Chestnut was planted in double rows 20 feet apart. The idea is that this is eventually going to be a chestnut uh, forest long-term. Short-term, obviously, it was a field with trees in it. And then we uh, grazed through it through a period of time, uh, and we mowed it uh, every once in a while. Well, trees that we didn't want came up, mostly black locust and white ash and uh, some uh, staghorn sumac. So what we did is we first thing is grazed through it there wasn't a lot to have for them to eat so they went through really quick and I went through the chainsaw and I dropped the trees that we didn't want uh, trimmed up the trees that we do want and then I came through with a, uh, a flail chopper it's a Bertie orchard mower and I use the forks on the front end to lift it up and to mash down the sticks as I drive over it and to just grind them up and see if I'll run this and uh, if you guys got some uh, sound ow that's loud <coughs> Just look at what it looks like now. All right, and this is what it looked like uh, two months after that that uh, video. The grasses that were there are no longer shaded out; they rebound like crazy. The chestnuts are now in the full sun they're going to grow like crazy. Look at all the nuts that are actually on the tree. There's still some on the trees. <clears throat> we've gone into here we've done a, a very low maintenance we've only whenever we've entered this site, we have extracted some sort of income we've grazed it for income we have Uh, cut those trees down for firewood, for mushroom logs, uh, and then afterwards we graze it again twice more this summer. Now look what we've got. Maybe a few years down the road we're gonna end up with something like this. Okay, so maybe our trees won't end up being that big. That's one of the goals. We've already seen this site. How can we steer succession on this site? How can we get some kind of yields uh, while staying within the realm of ecological processes. We want to minimize our costs, optimize our yields to us. We don't want this to just be expense, expense, expense. Let's get the eater once maybe, they'll make them like this. Uh, let's do the bulldozer, manage our water resource. This will incorporate organic matter with, uh, with rocks. It'll also get the water and, and soil, of course, and the water will get more evenly distributed. It'll soak in better. Uh, it'll be a, uh, less erosion. Uh, cleaner water. Um, this is another example I showed you. This is southern uh, <clears throat> longleaf pine. Optimizing water on the site, clear out all the understory. Sunlight gets in, now the grass can grow. And now let's underplant <clears throat> with some native species that have to have economic value. In this case, saw palmetto, which is a prostate medication, it's a herbal supplement that's booming sales on this. This is This this is a almost perfect mimic of a southern longleaf pine wet savanna, and here it is. This guy just did genuine ecological restoration and harvested yields all along the way with grazing, going to harvest yields with saw palmetto, continued grazing in the future, and actually one of the things they're thinking of doing is uh, collecting seed from some of these odd, rare uh, pine savanna wetland plants, the seed. Blueberries classic example it's torch with the blueberries. Let's manage pines uh, with blueberries. It's, let's manage you know uh, many of our woodlots with with fire. These tools can be adapted. I really want to adapt this to manage my oak savannah uh, hazelnut uh, plantings um, with with fire. It's another one of the things on my wish list. These are all uh, managed blueberry lands And and the blueberry barrens is probably the closest example I can think of right now of of commercial agriculture that basically is restoration agriculture. You're taking something here that this is worthless agricultural land. You can't grow corn or beans because of all the rocks. There's hardly any soil there at all. And all we do is we keep it in this open uh, shrubland phase with fire just like it's adapted. I would like to put in some Korean pines so we would now have pine nuts and blueberries in the system. So what do we do here? This is my site up in Maine again. What are your goals? What's your context? Let's manage this resource base. We know that everything from the uh, red pine to the birch to the butternut in this particular picture are all fire adapted species. We've got grasses in here which is also a fire adapted uh, herbaceous species. We can go in and mimic the effects of fire. We can remove the understory. To uh, allow certain other plants to flourish, the plants that we want to focus on that accomplish our goals, we can imitate the effects of a blowdown of wind and remove the overstory, which will release the understory. When we remove an overstory, if there's big openings, we can plant uh, whatever our favorite species are, that 's the next phase of succession. let's imitate what natural disturbances would be on this site uh, in order to accomplish our goals. And some of the things that we want to consider is, is we want to consider the timing when we do it. I mentioned doing the balsam fir, to harvest the balsam fir greens in November. Great time to make Christmas reeds. Uh, also, we might want to focus on plants that have hard mast, beech, oak, hickory. These are great for uh, for wildlife and great for feeding pigs. Uh, some kind of buffer strips. We want buffers along streams, cavities, older trees, legacy trees for some of uh Screech owls and red-headed woodpeckers, uh, tree swallows all live in cavities, bluebirds live in cavities and most of those uh, species are insect eaters. Uh, Some uh, screech owls will eat like mice that girdle your young trees. We want those guys to be doing some pest control for us. Uh, On your landings where you pull all your logs out too, go ahead and seed them in, plant them in, this can be your these could be your gardens later on because if you're doing any logging, there'll be a bigger disturbed area where you stacked everything up before loading it on trucks uh, or where you milled boards. There's lots of sawdust, plant lots of raspberries in your sawdust. Keep a good diversity, uh, but we don't have to go overboard on the diversity. We'll want to focus on some, go heavier on some economic, higher value economic species like at this site where I'm at in Pennsylvania. We're going to go heavy on chestnut because it has the most, Uh, opportunity for uh, high-value economic turnaround and keep your eyes on the big picture. As restoration agriculturists we want to operate within uh, uh, the the constraints of ecological systems. We want to be an active and a beneficial participant in uh, natural processes on planet Earth. We want to be a a force uh, for good instead of a force for destruction. So you take a look at this picture here What are some answers? What would you do at this site? What are your goals? Manage your water. Uh, Know the dominant plant communities in the area, what you've got to work with. If you don't understand and, and identify the trees and shrubs that are in your area, learn them. Now let's establish a system that mimics our natural plant communities. We learn the present disturbance regime and the past disturbance regime. Part of how we do that is by looking at the legacies. What kinds of species are there? Tell us what kind of disturbance regime has been there for a long period of time. These are there whether they're shade tolerance. If they're shade tolerance, like the tulip poplar, maple, and beech that are here, this has been a closed canopy, shady forest with no fire, uh, very few blowdowns for 300 years. That's a radically different disturbance regime than uh, northern Minnesota, where there's 12 foot tall jack pine that burns every five years. Imitate the disturbance regime of that area while you're harvesting yields. Use your animals and use crops as the economic management tools in your system. Uh, that's it for the evening. Thank you very much. And I, I actually can see the questions now. Somebody wishes I had a bigger pointer. I'll figure it out for next time. Thank you. Chemical smells from neighbors and pesticide spray.
0: Uh,
1: <clears throat> I was thinking cold hardy bamboo, northwestern PA. If you're gonna if you're gonna be a Northwestern PA and you're gonna plant cold hardy bamboo, I'd like to ask you a question first. Where is a cold hardy bamboo a native to? Uh, the answer is like Southeast Asia, China, Northern China, Manchuria. It is not a native here. And I uh, also would like to ask you to drive Interstate 95 <clears throat> down the, the Atlantic coast and you see what what cold hardy bamboo does cold hardy bamboo is not native to this area, it doesn't really have any native pests, it doesn't have any diseases that really affect it, and it takes over like crazy because our continent hasn't quite equalized with it yet. Or we can go block that using something really fast growing that's native to our area, that's adapted to this this system, won't cause any problems with the neighbors. We can use eastern cottonwood, we can use various different poplars, we can use uh, willows, super fast-growing willows, all kinds of different kinds of uh, willows that we can use. Then use those in combination. Those are the fast-growing. Your willows will be fast with a dense foliage. Cottonwoods and hybrid poplars will be uh, taller, also fast-growing, and then in the middle you can go plant eastern hemlock, which will be slower growing, shade tolerant as your willows and your poplars start to fade out, uh, you know, in 20 to 50 years. Then your hemlocks will be in there. Those would be a good windbreaks there, um, and those are also that. That's what this is. See on the left-hand side of our farm, this is actually uh, this is mostly hybrid poplar and willow, with black walnut planted in there because the black walnut is a longer-term, uh, high-value timber crop, and we graze in here. So here's your here's your uh, laundry smells and GMOs. Now we put in this buffer. We have fast-return hybrid poplar. This building was built, all the framing in this building was built from the hybrid poplar that, that we planted and we harvested on site that was acting as our windbreak. So our windbreak uh, built this building. Our, our windbreak also sheltered the area where animals graze, and walnut is a long-term crop. So we're getting annual yields from, from grazing cattle and hogs. We get short-term yields, 10 years for the hybrid poplar for, uh, for building materials. And then the longer-term yields are uh, black walnuts, and one of the yields that I'm getting right now are squirrels. So <clears throat> uh, how does that work? Um, now you need a wind blade. Now the area I need to wind block is nearly completely shaded by 60-foot tall maples, very nice straight, t- straight poles. Uh, there you go for, for uh, if you've got 60-foot tall maples, what comes up underneath that uh, in nature would be your eastern hemlocks. Uh, your maple coppices well, red oak will coppice well, uh, hickory does not coppice well, uh, white oak does not coppice well. So if you wanted to get started, put your uh, put a lot of eastern hemlock in there. You can get uh, uh, Musser Forest Nursery in Pennsylvania, I believe, has lots of eastern hemlock, uh, fairly inexpensive. And um, <coughs> one person, <laughs> this has come up a couple of times, some person says that, that uh, uh, they have the idea that I don't necessarily like black locust on the farm. If you are planning to plant black locust, um, you go ahead and do that. Plant black locust is an incredibly valuable wood. It's super hard, super rot resistant. It's nitrogen fixing. It has thorns that will puncture thousands of dollars worth of tires. And if you have enough moisture around, you know, uh, say half a meter, uh, half a meter to a meter worth of moisture a year. That stuff is going to grow so fast it grows from root suckers, stump sprouts, oodles and oodles of seeds. It makes fabulous honey. It's an incredibly valuable tree. It does not uh, behave the way I want a tree to behave on my site and there are plenty of other options that I have for rot-resistant wood, fast-growing wood, hardwood, and nitrogen fixation. I don't need to have something that's going to that t- actually right in here. See all the stick it on this picture? All this right over here is, is a massive clump of black locust that I didn't plant. It came in from outside. This whole thicket right here is a, is a thicket of black locust. It's, it's uh, actually taking away from some of my more valuable crops. Um, there's also uh, right over here this clump, that's all black locust, and um, it's behind my control panel. All this right here is black locust. Uh, this is in my asparagus patch. this black locust has taken over my asparagus that 's not helpful for me. I have to cash flow, and my, my asparagus is part of it. So I love black locust, but not where i don 't want it and so it 's got to go when it 's in my way. So if you plant black locust, you plant a black locust <laughs> um, let 's see and I actually am at a client's doing a uh, um, doing a consultation, and so i 'll do a couple more of these questions. Um, here's the, uh, how did I, I'm going to skip over Lisa Geary's question for a second. Um, How did I handle starting with no money and planting such an incredible diversity of trees? Uh, It was funded with annual produce for one, and then uh, also by buying wholesale and not retail. You try to buy, uh, you know, apple trees, for example, you have $15 for an apple tree out of a retail catalog, or you go to the wholesaler, you can get them for like, you know, five bucks a piece but you have to buy 1,000 of them. Well, okay, so buy 1,000 of them, uh, plant 500 and sell the other 500, get your nursery licenses, to sell another 500. We actually will be having uh, uh, some more educational uh, seminars and opportunities. Uh, we are are setting up nurseries in collaboration with people like you, Sam, uh, and want to work with you doing uh, tree breeding nurseries and sales nurseries so we all can do this and have our trees planted uh, all of the trees that you see on this farm were either planted free of charge or at a profit. Um, and then one question which was, I'll take this as the last question, deep root have a cooling effect on a tree a fire with the depth of the tree's root also have an effect on the temperature of the bark in the winter. That's actually really interesting. Uh, you're exactly right with different trees have different trunk temperatures. And what's another thing is uh, I want to have a light meter because different shade it's the same light intensity of shade, say a 50% shade, this shade under a hickory is cooler than shade under a maple which is uh, different than a shade under an oak which is different than shade under an ash and I wonder what that's coming from. I do know that uh, reflected light off of, of bark such as birch leaves can be helpful around a house to reflect more light or birch bark, excuse me, into a house in the winter time for more solar gain uh, so we can use the different colors of trees for that. I also know that with um, uh, areas like up in the far north in Alaska and uh, northern Canada, the uh, the the light bark of the birch will reflect more light. and You'll have more snow melting around it quicker uh, than other trees. And so you guys pay attention to some of that stuff too. That's really, uh, uh, really important. And that's all I've got time for tonight. Thank you guys for hanging in there. Uh, We'll uh, continue with a little bit with the disturbance next week and we're going to begin morphing into um, succession. Uh, Part of what we're doing here is I'm going from the big picture down to the small picture and as this course progresses we're going to go through uh, you know disturbance regimes, how we manage for disturbance, how we use disturbance into uh, succession, change of our site over time and what the effects are going to be as we do that. Then we'll go into individual different tree physiology, tree identification. How do these trees behave? How do those trees behave? How do they reproduce and so on. Uh, And so thank you everybody for being here tonight and we'll see you next Wednesday, same channel. I think at that time I will be in Appomattox, Virginia. Alright, have a good night everybody.
0: Hey everybody! I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.